Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season three of the 100 Masked Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all around the world about masculinity, self-worth, and self-love. Masked Man number 66 is the uncomfortable man. He shares his journey in self-healing and in dealing with anger and violence. I'm so grateful to have this conversation to share with you. We both get really vulnerable here. We laugh, we cry. It's really beautiful. And even in this anonymous call, there is so much discomfort when we talk about love, his inability to accept love, the shutting down when we get into that subject and why it's so difficult for him and maybe for a lot of men. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. I was born in Vancouver and in two when I was two years old, we moved to Armstrong, which is about 500 miles north of Vancouver. And uh, my dad and my mom are both immigrants. Uh, my dad from Finland and uh, my mom from, uh, she's Dutch Indonesian. So they came in 1967. I was born in 1975. So I think in 1978, we ended up moving up there. That's what it was, 77 or 78 to Armstrong. We just moved to like a piece of land with nothing on it. 14 Ooh. acres in the middle of nowhere. And Man. my dad wanted to be a cowboy. And I was the youngest of three brothers. They were both a bit older than me. I was a bit of an accident. Um, uh, we started ranching like from that moment on. Definitely felt safer with my mother. Grew up in a very violent household. Uh, no drinking, but lots of like physical abuse. I took on a foster brother, an indigenous boy, uh, and he brought lots of drama to the family also lots of um, he would run away all the time and he was stayed with us for about five years but I remember being in a really vast place where I could do whatever I wanted which was nice and we were very creative with my brothers my oldest brother was very creative and he was a great at building so we built lots of forts and trails and stuff like that so it was always fun yeah, rode our bikes. Like the nearest neighbor was like a mile away. And like, it was like, we're way out there. Wow. Do you still have that piece of land now? No, they sold it. Wow. Yeah. But they bought a new place. They bought a new chunk of land and they had like 400 acres, 300 acres. They just sold another 300 acres. And then they bought some other place in, in nearby, another couple hours from where we grew up. Mm. How, how old were you when you had your, the indigenous uh, foster brother? Uh, I would have been about four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, somewhere around there. Those are your ages. He was my roommate. My two older brothers were in the other room. He was in my room. I remember like waking up. I'm like, where are you going? <laughs> I'm, I'm going for a walk be gone for like a week really <laughs> we, have to, we have to find him somewhere yeah. how old was he he was probably in his 12 13 14 okay so he's a bit older than you yeah he was, a bit older. Cool. He was the oldest of us yeah oh, okay so yeah. what was the, the dynamic like because like three boys and then four boys it's a lot of a lot of boys yeah. you know kind of roughing around a lot of work we were working all the time we worked and worked and worked 
and uh, we played, but there was a lot of work to be done. It was a lot of like, I guess you could say like a lot of crazy boy shit. Like we had like this door downstairs, we had to go get firewood and the door would open a crack and we would put like a piece of lumber on top, like a, a wood piece, like a log. And the next person that would walk in, that log would fall on their head. Wow. You know, we kind of like severely injured each other. We did. We would like throw paper airplanes at each other's with like pins at the end of them. I've got scars all over my bodies from my brothers. And we had like, but we, it was kind of fun. Like we had, it was about a mile to the bus stop, like I said. And I remember going in the winter once to wait for the bus and walking there. And like my parents wouldn't drive us. We'd walk down this gravel road. And then it was so cold and so windy. We dug holes in the snow when we waited for the bus so the wind would go over top of us. And it was like, this was that kind of energy, lots of like games and stuff. There was lots of other, like there was other kids that would come by for the day and we would play in the mountains. And uh, lots of animals, lots of death, uh, like that sort of stuff. Like puffing chickens and, you know, horses and, a lot of horseback riding. We had a lake near us, so we'd run to the lake uh, and take baths and stuff. This indigenous lake. And yeah, and it was just my mom, right? She was the only yeah. female energy feminine there. So I gravitated towards her. Mm, okay. Yeah. Did she have and any friends, like female friends? She, yeah, she did. Yeah. yeah, she did. Yeah, she was in aerobics and she picked asparagus and fruit what was her kind of her side gig and stuff sold Tupperware and so there was always women around too and my grandma and my auntie were around they lived in Vancouver which is like five hours away but they my grandma and my auntie were a big feminine influence in my life so I think I gathered a lot of feminine energy from them and my mom was always like you know I'd like you're like my little girl you know so she would like you know take me shopping and stuff like that so mm, okay I think she, she got older, like she had my oldest brother when she was like 18. So I don't know, maybe she was 25 when she had me. So she was a bit more settled in herself. She wasn't as under the thumb as my father had her before. So I think, they, and I think his reins kind of loosened and she was able to, um, you know, just nurture me a bit more than say she had the other boys. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. So I think it's interesting that you you lived in a space with a lot of a lot of violence, and I think it also says a lot about the time. Like I remember a friend of mine; she was her mom was dating another man, and so she had to kind of live in their house and have this little stepsister that she was not getting along with at all. And she told me that her sister would put pieces of paper in her hair dryer so that her hair would catch on fire, and just these like little games. And it's like kids are crazy, you know, (laughs) how they think of certain things, like the log that you were just saying. And it's interesting how we, we do all these things to each other. It may or may not actually be, you know, fatal, but there's, there's so much more potential in that. So how has that, I mean, when you reflect on it now as an adult of just these dangerous things that you would put yourself through and I, and I know your father now, so how have you kind of retrospectively thought about that whole conundrum of you know how kids play uh, and how much of it is team building you know is is building character or and how much is it really dangerous and how much does it kind of affect um, how we see the world as kids at that time I think it's healthy 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it lacked compassion and empathy. Those were the two things that were missing from that whole dynamic. And that wasn't given. If that was just a little bit more, I think there would have been, it would have been safer and more, it would have been better. Sometimes I didn't feel safe. As the older we got, I didn't feel safe uh, with my brothers. But I think, I think it's healthy to be pushed, like pushed. Like I was pushed hard. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you have a bigger, thicker skin. And I think you're able to, it definitely made me playful. Mm-hmm. And I've put my kids in danger, for sure, <laughs> in a playful way. Okay. Right. Not in like, not in like, yeah, okay. They probably could have broken a wrist or an arm maybe, but I was there to protect them. But I feel like, like we, you know, like I built this giant piece of like this big rocking chair. It was like eight feet wide, six feet high. And I'd strap them in and we would rock and, you know, like dangerous stuff, but it was fun. And like mm-hmm. the way we, when we camp and stuff like that. But I know like there was a limit and sometimes I would go across it maybe. But I think that, so going back, I think that experience as a youth of like, yeah, I'm still alive. I've got some cuts and bruises, but I've got some good stories. But yeah, it's okay to push the boundaries here. Like, mm-hmm. like it's okay. And I think, you know, it should, can push them with my kids too a bit. But adding compassion and empathy and yeah, curious mm. to their feelings, those sort of things. Yeah. How many, how many kids do you have now and how, how old are they? I have three. I have an 18 year old girl who doesn't live with me anymore. So there was a boyfriend. Uh, I have um, a 15 year old boy and eight year old girl. Okay. And those two still live with you now? Yeah. Beautiful. And so what is, what is that relationship like? Um, are you, your single father? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's better than it has ever been. I mean, I just yelled at him before <laughs> I came in here because he was supposed to come down and help me carry some logs upstairs. And he didn't. And he had, he had failed on a couple things that he told me that he was going to do. So I was just like, you know, get the fuck out of bed. Like, let's go. This is what you've, you've told me you were going to do. This is the commitment you made and you didn't do it. Like, you know, and I was, I bought him some bubble tea last night and, you know, he's just, he's not living up to uh, the expectations that I've set for him. So I gave him, I don't yell at him very often, but I did scold him. So that relationship is, you know, he's pushing back because he's a teenager and he wants to see what he can do. So I respect that part of him, his growth. And with my daughter, I think, yeah, it's good. We're really close. We're, I don't think I've ever yelled at her, really. She's a good kid. Mm. Probably could express some feelings a bit more, some more feelings she has, but she kind of is pretty good. She's a good kid. So how have you been introducing the concept of compassion and empathy? Because I know, especially in your generation, even in mine, you know, that was something that my parents would never express with me and neither in school, neither with peers, right? Well, for example, uh, we just had a horrific event happen in Canada. I'm not sure, are you Canadian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. The, if the Indigenous residential schools, they found the 215 bodies in Kamloops. I mean, we all knew, really, I'm sure, deep down inside. 
that that had happened and those were happening, but I think it's up at the surface now. Um, so I, we are paying our respects to those people. I think that shows some empathy in how we do that. I don't think in my generation, we maybe would have done that. Empathy towards trees and, you know, things that are growing in this planet. I became a vegetarian to show some empathy towards the animals of this planet. And I think I'm not asking them to, but I'm showing them. And if they ask me why, I tell them why. And empathy towards, like, he's 15, so he's hard on his little sister sometimes. And I get it, like, he's trying to, like, toughen her up a bit in, in his own kind. He doesn't know that, but that's how he's doing it. So, but I sit him down and go, hey, you know, like, this is, this, this is how this can show up when she's 30, right? Like, what you're doing to her now. Like, this is how this can show up later in life. So just, you know... How do you feel? So really when I want them to become empathetic, I will ask them, we'll try to get curious with it and see, hey, like, what do you think's going on here? You know, and I think just not ramming living life so uh, pedal to the metal kind of, maybe walking a bit slowly and a bit more gently in life is maybe show some empathy that way. So we can just notice some things that were passing by. Mm-hmm. And be like, hey, this is, you notice this, you know, maybe just slowing things down. Yeah, I like that. I know in my family household, it was always just, it was just go, go, go. We always had to have one step ahead. And it was more of a survival tactic, you know, just being a minority group and saying like, okay, well, we need to work twice as hard in order to get half as much. So that was just the, the mentality and we never had compassion there towards ourselves or towards others in our communities so yeah I think giving that time is really important in everyone's self-growth yeah yeah and I think you know it gives you that pause that you know gives you a chance to reflect like whoa we're accomplishing a lot here you know we're doing pretty good you know wow my mom and dad are really working hard for me Mm -hmm. or wow I'm not actually you know I'm not um, doing my part or I'm not, you know, giving enough love here or, you know, anything. It's just that it brings you into presence, you know, when you're still a little bit more, you can reflect a bit more. Mm-hmm. So what is the relationship like with your kid's mother? Are they the same mother? Um, what's oh, yeah, mom? they're all the same mom. Um, she's, uh, we were together for 23 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she um, she was a really good mom, especially when they were young. I mean, in the fact that she was cuddled them and she has some trauma. She has really harsh trauma, and I don't think she I, I don't think she's ever gotten over it. I still think she's 16 years old emotionally, and I think you know you can stunt you when you hit that trauma. You just stop growing, and. Uh, she refuses to look at that trauma. And I think that created, now that was hard for me in the marriage. My part in the marriage obviously was uh, some, a lot of control and manipulation to make myself feel safe and to make me more, to make me feel comfortable. Like mm-hmm. if I wasn't comfortable or things were hard for me, I would make sure they weren't at whatever cost necessary. 
So my relationship with her now, I think, is better knowing both of those things, what her trauma is and her triggers are and what mine are. And I think just understanding that when we talk. So when we communicate, I understand when things are difficult for me and I and why she's getting defensive or mad or shutting down is because I'm going into the control and manipulation. And I understand when she also shuts down is that she uh, also has this trauma and that can be reflected on me in the same ways, right? So the relationship is friendly. Mm-hmm. We co-parent very well week on week off and yeah it's been pretty good there was some substance abuse on her part and I had to take the kids away a couple times she seems to be turning a corner but yeah we're friendly and amicable we're not going on vacations to Mexico yeah <laughs> okay we spend, awesome. Christmas, we spend Christmas together you know we've got no problem sitting down for dinner Nice. And how long have you guys been separated for? Two years in July. Okay. So I guess that's still fairly recent. Pretty recent. Yeah. So tell me more about your journey to just getting to know yourself a little bit more. And I know this is a very intimate subject for a lot of men in okay, general. No one, no <laughs> one knows me, so I don't care. Yeah. So I divorced. She was cheating on me in a way. And it was just the end of the marriage. And I was like, okay. We're, uh, I'm done here. And then a couple of weeks later, I, I was drinking. I was drinking a lot, doing lots of drugs, cocaine and pills and everything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I assaulted, one night I assaulted her brother-in-law or her brother-in-law in front of my kids. And I got taken to jail. And when I got out, I went back to the house and they kicked me out of the, the child services came and kicked me out of the house said you can't stay here and the cop looked at me and he was like hey what's going on with you man you got this fucking million dollar house and these kids are fucking scared of you and you know like what's going do you have mental issues like what the fuck's going on and I was like I don't know so I slept in my truck for a few days the police dog got me and I got scars on my leg from this police dog dragging me out of the house and wow. yeah and I was handcuffed in the back alley in front of all my neighbors and and I was then I knocked on my cousin's door and I was like hey I need a place to stay and I was just down in his basement and I was like you know what the fuck's happening here brother so my first step was stop drinking so I went to rehab. Uh, it was a detox program here in Vancouver where you could work during the day. Like you could, you have to do 10 hours. You can go all day long. It's open for 12 hours. You can just keep going to programs all day. Okay. So I just started doing that. And then I just dived right in and did some, I did anger management. So those two things I did back to back and then got myself a therapist. So I did those three things. And um, then I, uh, once I got sober and kind of it was about maybe six months later I was like I was like okay I'm like I can kind of see what's going on here like getting sober was the easy part Mm. because now I can see what I need to do I'm in the tunnel I know there's a light I can't see the light but at least my I can see clearly now you know like I can see 
what I need to do to get better, to be there for my kids. So I just dove right in with a lot of personal growth and gestalt therapy. And like, I guess if you could, if you could focus in, it was inner child work. Mm -hmm. So going back to how we started this program, you know, with my mom and dad and the violence and, you know, being isolated like that and what happened to us and what happened to my indigenous brother and, you know, how I was treated. So I just started working on my inner child. I joined some men's groups. I did lots of retreats. I then I started, I found breath work. And that was probably the biggest thing for me too. Breath work really helped me let go or is letting me go of these old stories. This story that I'm telling you right now is not my story. It's my story, but it's not how I function. It's not who I am when I walk this life anymore. I don't walk this life because of this, what's happened in this story. It's in a way, but you know, I'm bigger than this now. I've grown from it, I feel. So I don't hold on to it as tight as I used to and make an excuse for how I act. But yeah, so that's what breathwork did for me. And then continuing on with, you know, I took this winter to kind of let a lot of stuff integrate. Yeah. But yeah, I was going to therapy like, I mean, I, for a year there, I was hitting it. I was going every day. Wow. To some form of healing. Mm -hmm. At least, like, I mean, fuck you, name it, I did it, man. I had neural electrodes plugged into my head. This one therapist I saw, and he would, he would go to sleep, and he'd pour these glasses, and they'd get into your, between your delta and your theta waves. Wow. And he would put you into a state, and it would, would they use it for PTSD to kind of attack the, the brain neurons, and I mean, I did lots of shadow work. I mean, I can't even, I can't even remember all the shit I did, but I'm glad I'm in a union. Wow. <laughs> That's insane. So, yeah. so all of this time, were you not working? Oh, I was happened? working too, but my job was, I took a lot of time off and like, I would go in for like three or four hours and then take the rest of the day off. I would just work around it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would work and go see a therapist and then take an hour on either side so i take three hours off in the middle of the day or something and sometimes we do we do um this like zoom or whatever and yeah i think that's really interesting that you're you made your work work around your mental health work you know because yeah. it's it's the switch usually we just schedule in like 15 to 20 minutes to meditate or you know whatever you, you try to make mental health fit into your daily schedule which is prioritized by work so how was that experience like with the flip side where you were working way less hours and you were really focusing on your personal development in comparison to how you might have maybe never looked at your personal development before yeah i mean looking at your personal self your shit it's pretty mm -hmm. tough nobody wants to right but i was forced to because you know, I had to show up for my kids. My kids needed me. So, I mean, I had to change. And so I was forced into it, which was great. And I am grateful for my employers, you know, being in a union where, you know, and the guys that I work with are like, yeah, sure, man. You know, and I've been doing it for 18 years. I'm pretty good. So I could do a lot of it on the fly. Like, and I could go in in the morning and you know get everybody going leave come back make sure the jobs are done 
and you know just hiring people in places that could do the job so you know entrusting people and then and then really in the end like who gives a fuck like if i don't fix this i won't have a job exactly. if i don't fix this i won't have a relationship with the kids if i don't fix this i will i'm going to float through the rest of my life and never really feel anything mm-hmm. yeah and then what's the point right what's the fucking point mm-hmm. so i was at the point like where if i lost my job i was like i don't give a fuck like I mean, I do, but like, what's more important here? Like, you know, and I was straight up with everybody. I was like, I just got divorced. I'm going through rehab. Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to a therapist today. And they're like, oh, fuck. I'm doing this retreat. You know, I'm going to, you know, this is happening here. You know, I was spending a week working on trauma online with Gabor Mate. Yeah. And that's what I was doing. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's amazing that you have overcome it and, and gone and come to be able to speak about it today. So what was that experience like when you saw the fear in your kids' eyes and how did you, what did you do on that work to, to kind of change that? And, and how has that changed today? Cause I know, you know, we were just talking about you yelling at your, at your son. So you know, how is that dynamic, you know? Well, when I yelled at my son, I was, I was, thank you for the question. Uh, when I yelled at my son now, I was present. Mm. And I was a 46, 45-year-old man, not an 11-year-old boy yelling at him. That's the difference. And, you know, it's okay if, like, you know, you got to get your point across sometimes. And, like, I did it. I was aware of who I was and why I was doing it. Like, how did I feel when I saw the fear in my kid's eyes? I mean, like, fuck. Like a piece of shit. Like a dirtbag. Felt zero. Less than zero. Yeah. So, I mean, pretty bad. How did I fix it? I shut the fuck up. Opened my ears. Apologized. Apologized again. Asked them. Became curious in how they feel. Asked them how it impacted their life. What they would like, how would they like me to show up for them? And if there was anything I could do for them in this moment. And then I just became present where they could see me, all of me. Yeah, that is, that's so powerful. And what a gift, you know, I, I think of my own father when you say that and I think this is pretty recent that he's just started to just burst into anger all of a sudden and I think especially with people that are retired or people that are just 60 plus that are just older and as also in ethnic communities you just look at the crazy old man doing his thing and there is no help you know, it's accepted in a way of just like, oh, that's just what he does. Let's just all ignore him. And then he'll never be seen for the pain that he's going through and, and to why he, he feels like he needs to burst out in this anger. And, and I remember when I left to Mexico, I was just like, this is, this man is intolerable. Like I can't, I can't be around him. And I hated that that was the feeling I had because you know, I know that I should be feeling love for this, this person that brought me life. And yeah. 
and it's, it's so hard because if someone can't see themselves, you know, what is, you can't see them either because you don't know what they are until yeah. that shows through. Where did he immigrate from? He came from Taiwan. So yeah. And uh, he was the youngest of, uh, of five kids. And, and yeah, I think um, there's just been so much change in, in the world that I think a big struggle is knowing your place in the world. Like if you feel displaced and you don't know what your role is. And I think, you know, you can relate to that with the, with the control and the need for control. If like, if I don't know what I'm doing, if I'm not in control of myself, well, who's going to be responsible for that? Right. Yeah. You know, in fear, it's like, I'm sure, you know, it's like not the, it's, there's the underlying, it's the second emotion. Right. So there's an underlying something going on there. If either like, you know, my anger was, yeah, I was scared. <laughs> right. I mean, I was scared. And, you know, so that's why I was angry. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you don't know anything else or you're not comfortable with expressing yourself, you know, especially a 60 year old man from Taiwan, it's probably not. You know, I can assume that he's probably not open to expressing his emotions in his community. Exactly. And, you know, that's frustrating. And if you're frustrated, you get angry. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure he wants to show up in a different way for you. Mm-hmm. Maybe he just might not know how. Yeah, and I think it's it's hard to have these conversations because it's not for a lack of desire to. It's just there's a lack of skill set of of actual you know ability, and yeah. that needs to be differentiated. You know and. I mean, sitting through this right now, you know, a couple of years ago, my body would be on fire with heat, you know, and you ask a man to sit and talk like this. It's not because he doesn't want to, his body physically is not letting him do it because it takes him to a place where, you know, he doesn't want to go anymore. He's put himself so far away from that place. And so physically, it's hard for men to even have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the I body think... will, so yeah, I mean, the body will just literally get them up and move or go into paralysis or man, my neck hurts. Like I got to get an aspirin. I'll be right back. You know, that's mm-hmm. just the body saying, we're not, we're not having this conversation, buddy. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting how we associate so much of our health to our physicality. Your body's reaction is, is something to, to your, your heart, your head. There's, there's so many other elements besides just the outer physicality of discomfort. You know, like yeah. if you sit somewhere and your foot goes to sleep, it's, it's not just that. It's, there's something else beneath that that is causing that, yeah. that irritation, right? Yeah. So the more we slow down and the more we become aware you know, the more we don't go in our garage and fiddle and putter to get away from everybody looks at us and we're this crazy old man. The more we don't do that, the more we sit in ourselves and our body and not get distracted, the easier it becomes to speak our emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so hard in a community where that's not a value. It's kind of like you just got to power through, 
get your shit together. Everything's fine. And you're fine. Like just take a chill yeah. pill and get out and know, and you know, what you think isn't real, you know? And then that even makes it harder because, well, why bother now? Cause no one believes yeah. you, you actually are crazy. Like, let's just not, yeah. not go there anymore. Did you ever experience that where people were like, wow, you're doing so much work on yourself that maybe you lost friends or you weren't able to resonate with them anymore or people tried to put you back into a different label? Like what was your experience like in your movement? It was lonely. Yeah, it was lonely. It was, you know, and you look for anything, you know, you look for attachment, right? You know, and I did attach on to women couple women to try to just you know just hold on to something and it was lonely it was um of course you find that doesn't work and yeah I lost a lot of friends you know and it became like it became okay because uh you're like that doesn't because you're like I was saying you get more and more in your body and then in your body just doesn't feel right. Like when you sit around the park bench with these people, your body tells you you're not comfortable. This isn't the conversations you want to be having. This isn't, this, these actions aren't the ones you are aligned with you anymore. So your body starts to tell you through anxiety or through nervousness or just pain or whatever. And, you, and then you, you start to think you're like, I don't need to be here anymore. And when you walk away from that picnic table, you know, when you say goodbye to that, that portion of your friendship, that intimacy of your friendship that you can no longer share, it's kind of empowering. You know, you're like, hey, like, you know, I'm loving myself in this moment. You know, I'm not putting myself through anguish. I'm not putting myself through that anxiety of like trying to force this to work. And then I think, you know, and I mean, like the universe brings people in your life, like, you know, like attracts like, you know, I'm sitting here with you, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what, that's how far this universe has pushed me. And this, I'm happy right now to be here with you. You know, the universe has brought me here just, just because I'm, I'm making the change in myself and the world starts to change around me and my environment starts to encompass me and, well, it's a good feeling to say that. But the, yeah, the work can be lonely. And I think the, I mean, COVID was actually kind of a good thing because I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to, I can really dive into it too, right? I mean, like, I didn't have to show up for anybody in those other ways. You know, my schedule was pretty open <laughs> for myself. Yeah. And it was okay to be still. The phone wasn't ringing. So it was like, you know, can just, I can just hear, I can just sit here for a while. Yeah. And I can just sit here. I think that's beautiful how, how far you've come. How was the beginning of your journey when you entered these men's groups? Was Because the way I think of men's groups is like, it's not like what I would assume a woman's group is like, you know, it's very kumbaya or like, you know, power to this, power to that. It's almost the opposite because it's how many ways can you disarm yourself you know and and show the real you in front of these these men when in such a traditional sense at least especially in our generation 
it was all about puffing up your ego and presenting yourself in a certain way. You present yourself to other men, you present yourself to other women, yeah. you present yourself all the time. So how was that process like removing all of those masks? And did you realize you had like masks under those masks? You know, what was that like? Yeah, uh, it was fun. It was fun. It, I mean, I, uh, the guys, men are great. So mm-hmm. it's always cool to be in a room with men because the humor. I mean, we always, de- we default to humor a lot. Like, you know, and it's, sometimes it's, it's pretty lowbrow stuff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's pretty intellectual humor and it's, it's good. It's fun. So I love it about that and just being with guys and I work with men too. It's always fun. But I, what you said about the ego was definitely, that was it. I mean, the ego, I was like wanting to talk and Hey, I'm this and this and yada, yada, yada. And it was quickly found out that nobody gives a fuck, <laughs> you know, yeah. that it's like, what do you like in these this room right now? And that's how you'll be viewed, not anything else. So it, it was like, you know, you get in there, you're a bit more naked when you walk in the room, you know, after a while. And everyone's just like, I don't give a fuck what you drive. I don't care any about that other shit. Like, you're not handsome here. There's no girl here. There's nothing. There's just us right here. You know, I don't care how educated you are. So that was all like, little, little, little. Mm-hmm. and so that when that started to show up for me where I was able to understand that it was easier for me to show up in those groups without the ego it actually felt lighter right yeah. and so I could really be myself there and it was cool and I was like wow you know like and it's it's growth to be yourself and to get back to like you know who you are and like to be who you are and uh I actually just uh this past month i've had struggled with the men's group actually actually i've a lot of stuff's been coming up for me and i got angry like i wanted to fight my captain and i was like because some shit he said to me that was all my bullshit and you know this control manipulation thing and and then there was a bit of like i just maybe i was feeling i don't know if i was bored or if I wasn't being pushed, or I don't know what it was. I was getting like, I just didn't want to hear some of the men's stories anymore. Like I was like, I've been here a fucking year and you're still crying on the same fucking issue. Like get your shit together. Like I don't want to fucking waste my time listening to your bullshit anymore. So I say it. Yeah. Like I just tell them, I don't want to fucking show up here and listen to you fucking cry about this anymore it's garbage i don't want to waste my time doing this and so and you know sometimes it's taken one way or another and you know sometimes it's appreciated but i don't know that's a bit like yeah i mean i have compassion but not that much like i value my time well i think that's interesting because i mean these one these people are showing up to to listen to you and they might be in a different position where I've heard a lot of men are just like, they'll just go and listen because they're not yeah. all ready to, to speak, right? So Correct. they're giving that space to, to everyone else's stories to take that in because it's a reflection on themselves as in, I'm not ready. You know, maybe they need to see other people's perspectives, whatever their journey is, they're still, they're not ready yet. And then when yeah. they are ready, like just verbalizing is step one. 
they don't actually take an action yet until they're done processing the talking part. And who knows how long that part is because they've been silenced for as long as they've been. Yeah. So when you're, when you're talking about that, you don't want to give them time, you know, how is that a projection of more about you and your ego than it is about them and, and their, their movement. Right. Yeah. I, and that's it. And that's what I'm going through. It's like, this is all me. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what's, what I'm feeling is all, yeah. They're just the reflection for me and soundboard and mirror and all that shit. Yeah. Was there anything that kind of triggered, like maybe you were being stagnant in something in some way that when you were hearing all these people in the same place that you're like, you know what, like, I'm in the same place too. This is annoying. I guess the, uh, the uh, stagnant of my growth too. Like it hasn't been as exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a year and a half there. Of just every day was like, ah, mm-hmm. you know, aha moments all the time and it's like now it's slowed down and you know it's a bit like I'm not and there's also like I do like to have a bit of there's a part of me that likes to have a bit of drama around me to make Mm -hmm. me feel a bit safe yeah like when things are a bit too calm and mellow and I bet you probably that I have to do something with my son too this morning it was just a little you know I want him to get to be moving in any way Mm -hmm. you know that's a fine line of like yeah I want I want him to take responsibility I want him to get up and not sleep all day and be prepared for school and you know all those sort of things but at the same time you know I have to find where things are okay if things aren't happening Mm -hmm. you know so Mm -hmm. yeah I think you know he maybe hit something there where you know I uh I probably a bit stagnant in my own development and that's got me a little bit of thinking about that maybe. Yeah. I think of it like when you go to the gym for the first time after a long time and it's like, it's hard and you're just climbing up the the steps, but then you see the results as you go because you were unhealthy before and now you're healthy mm. right? and, and you're really focusing on it and you're seeing all the results and then you hit that plateau mm. and you're like, now I just have to maintain yeah. Or, you know, you drop. And so either you'll, you know, start increasing your cheat days because you're like, oh, I'm fit. I can do it. So it's fine. Or, you know, you're just like, oh, I'm not getting as many results as I wanted to because I was on right. such a cool track earlier. But you're in a different stage now. You're in stage two, right? Like you, you yeah. passed stage one. So it's, it is about maintenance now. And I think there's a, sometimes we have an impatience when we're like, well, we should be improving at this rate, you know, and you can't do that with with yourself, I guess yeah. you, you've already developed and no matter what, like the goal is always that you're growing. So you're still always growing. You don't have to grow at a certain rate. Yeah. Right. No, you're, you're, you're right. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's, I'm not comfortable. Mm. Maybe, I, me, and maybe it's hard for me to be comfortable too. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, yeah, like, I mean, I am doing really good. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just like, whoa, how does that feel for me? Like I took two months off work and it's like, I'm in a few days in now and it's like, I'm not solving anybody's problem. I'm not babysitting anybody. Like, it's just me. Like you can breathe, you can just relax and just enjoy what's happening here too. But it's hard for me. You know, I think it's hard. Like 
men want to prove their worth. Mm. You know, that I, you know, they want to, that's the mask that a man wears too sometimes. Yeah. I think as I continue on with these interviews and I learn about a lot of the fears and I learn about the masks and I learn that there's a lot of presentation and wanting to show your worth. And at the end of the day, especially with heterosexual men that want relationships with women, it's, they, they want to feel needed. And I think when they get rejected yeah. because a woman's like, nope, you don't have to hold my hold the door for me. Nope, you don't have to do this for me. I'm independent. I can do all these things. There is this feeling of, of uselessness. And especially if a woman takes over like childcare or home care or something, and you're just like, well, what do I do? Like, can I do something? And then they'll be like, oh, yeah. just take out the trash, do something, you know, minuscule and, you know, non-important. So how, how would you like that dynamic to be communicated better between men and women in, in terms of showing, showing that need, because first off, I don't receive enough communication on like, I don't know how you want to feel needed. So I will accidentally or unintentionally make you feel not needed, you know, and I already have this problem of even asking for help. Sometimes when I do ask for help, you know, it's, it's received really, really well, but I feel stupid mm. that I had to ask for the help. Right. Or mm. I feel like, why should I bother asking? I think about this question in my last relationship. Yeah, completely. It's hard coming from that marriage where I was the father to her, essentially. Mm. And I was validated in lots of ways. And, you know, the way that she, she kept the children away from me just so she could control something. She could have something that she could do. So it was a bad dynamic. But the last previous relationship that I've just had is that she didn't need me. You know, and I find that now, you know, in my 40s dating women, it's like, they don't fucking need me. Yeah. They're single in their 40s. They're making just as much money as I am. Own a house. Like, they don't need me around. Mm-hmm. And that's me uh, having to recalibrate my thinking, you know, in, wow, like my ego for sure. And, but I do need to be needed. So I ask for validation a lot i straight up just ask just if i'm gonna ask you right now could you validate me yeah i can validate you sure i would um make me feel good i would say i see you and i would say i can feel you i can say that i can relate to you a lot and i see a lot of power in you a lot of strength in you yeah so that's what i do okay to help me and so i'll say like i need something right now from you like i'm feeling like i'm blown in the wind here and uh so i'll just ask my partner or somebody i care about in a relationship with to do that for me maybe it's a bit needy i don't know but i would do it because i need it and then i think it refocuses me a bit and I think, you know, with not being needed, it's aligns with not being loved. Yeah. Yeah, I've forgotten about. And then, you know, just not, you know, just, it's not like forgotten. Mm-hmm. Like everybody got in the station wagon and went to the beach and forgot you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's the feeling. 
so I think I think it's our shit, not、mm-hmm. our not yours or our partners. I think we can ask for some help, but I think we really, as men, we need to work on that portion, that ego, that loneliness, that inner child thing. I think that's what's showing up in that moment.、Mm-hmm. So if we have a grip on that, because I know other men, their wife does everything, and they're just like, "I'm good here. I got this part nailed down, and I'm okay."、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that answering your question? I'm sorry. So, a little bit. So, I'll give you an example. Okay. Where I would do all those things. You know, I would say, "Hey, I know that you have a conception of me. You think that I have all my shit together, and you think that I'm the strong, independent woman, and I don't need you, and et cetera, et cetera." But I'm telling you that I love you. That I want to be here for you. I can see that you're stressed out because you feel like you're underdelivering in what you believe your role is in being a man、right. for me. So I'm letting you know that that's not true. Whatever these thoughts are that are in your head, and you know, if you want to share anything that's going on, you can because this is this is why I'm here. This is why I'm your partner. You know, why does that always? I mean, usually、uh, result in shutdown. Right. So. Someone had told me that, and you know what you just did there is, you know, that's good. But someone told me that vulnerability is the quickest way there. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, to be vulnerable and to understand where someone's coming from with proper communication, compassionate communication, because yeah. So and this way, men would have all the information、mm-hmm. of what's going on on both sides. I think that's probably a good way. Well, probably the best way. Yeah. Compassionate communication, vulnerability. So, I mean, if that happened to you, I mean, earlier before you were kind of on this this track, would would you have reacted and shut down? Is that like what you would say? Still react and shut down. So then,、yeah. how can you do that? How can it be spoken about better so that it's not shut down? Practice. You have to know your partner, like what their triggers are. Like, I mean, first being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So there's the so there's that power shift and dynamic where when you're vulnerable, it clicks in the male, masculine, nurturing, protective thing.、Mm-hmm. So that by you being vulnerable, it brings their shield down because they want to protect you a bit, and and then it can it can get this man into this role where he can lifts his pride up a bit and tries opens him up a bit and softens him.、Mm-hmm. And then, if the man is softened and put in a place where he doesn't feel like where his confidence is back up, and he won't he won't shut down,、uh, I think then he can start to speak and start to care. And I think you know, listening to listening also to what he has to say, you know, without judgment,、mm-hmm. and then reflecting back on it. But I think with if. Uh, women come in a bit vulnerable, I think, you know, and maybe you know, build up the man's ego a bit, and then let him, you know, that's probably where we function best from. So, would you say that what I just said earlier was not vulnerable? It was. It was vulnerable. Yeah, what you said would. Yeah, what you said would work for sure. Okay. Yeah, well, and this is the thing. Like, I don't think.、Um... 
there is enough examples of vulnerability because even if I am being vulnerable, if someone is still looking at me in their version of a mask on me, it, uh, it won't go through whichever words it is, you know, and if that's been decided and that's why I was wondering, you know, it's, it's different. Cause like if your kids were afraid of you at a, at a certain period of time over enough examples, over enough moments where you sit down and communicate with them, you know, that, that can change their mind, but they have to open up and give you that yeah. chance. You know, they have to be in the room with you for all of those instances for that to yeah. change. But I unfortunately yeah. see a lot of men don't give that chance to give that space. And then that's how they shut down both on other people as well as love for themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're not in a, in a relationship with a conscious man, I mean, it's, I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. He's just going to go in the garage and masturbate. Or, <laughs> you know, he's going to yeah. go on the watch and, and, do you know, watch sports. You have to create that conscious environment for him. And some guys won't go there. Mm-hmm. They won't. They'll communicate in a real black and white manner with their partner. Yeah. Or not. And then that partnership is just in floating in for the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. Making yeah. a safe space to communicate, I would say that would help. Mm-hmm. So reflecting on your relationship for 20-ish years, how would you say that most of it you were not present? <sighs> through, just through substances, probably I was gone probably half the time. And then through anger, probably half of that. Through distraction from work, half of that. Yeah, not very much. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was not present at all. And... Like I said before, you know, we did have those conversations. We mostly had them when we were drunk or under the influence. That's where we did our most, most best communication. But there was a lot of shutdown in that relationship. There's even in shutdowns in these relationships, even as a conscious man. Like I will shut down and just yeah. not, it's what I'm, you know, for me, it's like when my inner child gets rubbed the wrong way, it's, it's, it's shutdown time. When I'm, when I'm seen, I shut down. So why is that your reaction if that's ultimately what you want, right, to be seen? Because I'm ashamed. There's a lot of shame there. Don't think I'm good enough. You know, in the end, I'm this... When I close my eyes and I think of that, I'm this uh, brown boy, naked, or in the middle of a bunch of kids laughing at me with their pink fingers pointed at me. You know, that's how I feel. I feel, you know, when that happens, the judgment. Mm. I think it's interesting because I think coming from from a woman's perspective about being seen is kind of like finally you know and it's it's like this fight forever to be seen and then i'm noticing that it's the total opposite that if you're seen in, in your true authenticity as a man it's like ah oh, fuck i don't want you to know that version of me because i've been presenting myself this whole entire time so it's it's a wild polarity every time i hear that cuz i'm like this is what i've been this is what i wait for this is what yeah. i dream for to be seen 
with this with these interviews, how many of the people relate to their mother better? Not a lot. Oh, really? They relate to their fathers better? Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, a majority of them do. The ones that relate to their mother more Interesting. are are very different in in their interview style. They are immediately more open to communicating and I can dig deeper a lot faster. So then that's how I can recognize the female energy there. But most of the time it is very male-centric on, on needing to present and, and uh, having a very toxic relationship with their father. It's very competitive usually. And, and there's a lot of judgment. Either they agree with his teaching or they don't. And then that's how they kind of yeah. run through the rest of their life. So I think what I'm thinking about is like why men don't want to be seen. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, they don't want to be perceived as weak. I would say they don't want to like that mask would come off. Right. And it's like fucking hard to be a man. It's fucking hard to be your father. Mm-hmm. Everybody's father is can strong and ass kicker. Everything. Your father's everything. They'll ne- no, no man will ever be their father. You know, I mean, I mean, in general term, like, I mean, you can't compete with your father. We're all trying to, you know, so to be seen would be to like tear down all this work that you've done to try to be as great as your father. Yeah. And you're not. And you don't want that. You don't want your dad to see that. <laughs> you, you know, you don't want other men to see all that, all that work you've done. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're vulnerable and it's like, oh, the fuck I put all this work in for nothing mm-hmm. now someone's gonna see me naked with all the shit and all that stuff you all these things these things you do to be a man like you know play hockey bro it up fuck truck beers fucking build a dog shed whatever all this crazy man shit have a nice lawn fucking barbecue stuff fuck chicks yeah. you know all this stuff it's like you know, it's none of us really want to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I'd rather not do any of that stuff. But men just do it. Like, oh, I got a big truck. I got a fucking truck. I got a truck. <laughs> you know, it's like I just want to get in a vehicle that gets me from one place to the other. You mm-hmm. know, but you got all this men stuff, and it's like when you finally like, I don't even think men really like. I like being a man, but you know, some of that stuff's fun, but it's a lot of work to get there. Mm-hmm. And so like, you don't really own a lot of that stuff. So when you're seen, you're really gonna be seen as the fact that you don't really even own all that masculinity. Mm-hmm. It's just a bunch of collected things. And if you were gonna let go of all those things and then it's just you now, like th- this is the funniest thing because I think that's, that's the most magical part of a man is everything that he is against the concept of a traditional man. Letting go. Yeah. When he lets go and it's like, that's it. I, this is just the version of me and I'm, I'm not all of these things that I present myself in society, how you met me, you know, all of these things. And, and that's, that's all I want to see, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not the only one in terms of other women that just want to see that. Like, I, I don't want to see your suit and tie. I don't want to see, you know, how well you can articulate yourself in this presentation yeah. and this dinner party and whatever it is. And anytime I try to move closer to that, that's, you know, it's just always a shutdown and shutdown. It's like, well, if you want that, 
too. Like you want someone to see you and you can feel comfortable and safe with, you know, why do you run away from, from these, from these women that are giving you exactly what you're asking for? Unless like you said, the fear of like showing up yeah. and seeing that mirror, right? You're scared as fuck. <laughs> like for me, yeah. like I, I can't, for me, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't accept love. I can't, I can't, I'm scared to get a dog because I'd love the dog so much that it would crush me. Like someone's going to pull the rug out from under me. Mm-hmm. That's me. But yeah, I mean, like it's, it's hard for men to really just show up and just be like, ah, here I am. Snuggle me. Yeah. You know, and for me, it's like women just want to like women have always been, I just want to just hang out with you and snuggle you and like be with yeah. you. And I like snuggling, but then after a while, it's like, I should be doing something. Mm-hmm. I should be doing something. Something's not right here. Something's not, something's not settling with me here. And it's like this need to like, you know, mm-hmm. show up in this masculine way. I guess, I mean, it's scary. I'm like, you can see me like, looking at <laughs> You're it. You're so you uncomfortable. <laughs> I got so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> and That's it's, so funny. You know, it's it's hard. Like, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, they don't. You don't. You don't care about anything, do you? You just want. You just want us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you I. Just, you, I just, you just want me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I yeah. think it's been so beautiful this journey of at least me visiting, you know, and meeting all these men because as like literally each one continues, the more love I have for myself to give back, you know? And, and yeah, I guess sometimes we need to laugh about it because it's like, there's so much love everywhere and and no one needs to, to work for it. But here we are showing up, trying to work for it. It's just like you're sitting in front of a buffet table and you're just not eating everything that's there and you're like I'm really hungry it's like well no shit <laughs> you know it's just, I just think it's 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 wild how silly we are as humans sometimes <sighs> wow that was really beautiful I mean like you're right it is everywhere mm-hmm. yeah. blind ass mother's man mm-hmm. well this has been this has been such a great chat I'm I had no idea that it was going to take this turn. So I really appreciate you. And I'm, I'm so grateful for today's conversation. My last question to you, I know we spoke about a lot of things today. So is there anything that jumped out to you that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in another episode on the show? Uh, sex- sexuality. Mm, okay. And how they show up sexually with their partner and what that brings on. I think men carry a lot of shame in sex and I think uh yeah and I think erectile dysfunction is huge men and you know it's really connected to their brains and just just you know just not just putting it on the shelf and I'm like I do not have to deal with this and the person that suffers is the partner mm. Okay. And how they feel when a woman takes control sexually. So sex, I would say, is a huge masculine issue that's not talked about, probably more than even just our feelings. Yeah. 
we don't talk about sex and talk about all the great shit we did, but you know, if there are feelings, we'll say, boy, I'll say to my guys at work, like, fuck, I fucking freaked out on my kid today or I fucking, I finger, I F-bombed this guy in the street. He was just, he made a mistake and I tore a piece off of him and honked at him. We'll say all that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. We won't say, fuck, I couldn't make my partner orgasm last night. Or I did not want to have sex with my partner because, you know, I was ashamed of this or like, so we will talk about our feelings and how we acted in public, but we won't talk about how we show up sexually or thoughts we have about sex, about how we want our partners to engage with us. I think that's, yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. As you were saying that, I was like, there have been so many men in my life that lied about having sex with me. You know, they would just make up, make up stories because anyone that did have sex with me would never speak about it because there was always problems with performance, like all of them. And you're right. It's, it's an expression if, if the woman is taking control over, over the sex, you know, that that's the result. It just, I just find it interesting every time that somebody lies about having sex with me, because if they did, you know, they wouldn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And you know, that's that's us running away from our masculinity. Like we do not mm-hmm. like, and, and performance, mm-hmm. you know, like, fuck Oh, I, I had sex with her. It was great. Yada, yada, yada. Well, you didn't. And now you're carrying around this lie and it's more of this masculine shit that you've got to carry around. And that's where it's all, it's all at. Like, I mean, when it's, it's like as, as men, what we say to each other is like, what it comes down to is I can kick your ass. Like, that's a real masculine thing. It's like you walk in a room, that guy, he could kick everyone's ass in this room. You know, and there's like a hierarchy Mm. in a way. When it all boils down to it, it's like, who's the strongest man in this room? The same thing is when it boils down to it, it's like sexually, like, how are you showing up? Mm -hmm. You know, and nobody really wants wants to acknowledge that. And I think, unfortunately, there's too much focus on the outer physicality to represent both strength and sexuality because yeah. strength and sexuality can easily be defined in many different ways and is yeah. in the female form, but it's not yet with men. Yeah. Females have a way greater grasp of sexuality. I mean, the way that, you know, what entices a woman to have sex or become intimate, you know, is connection. Mm-hmm. For men, it is, I mean, I like that part of it, but I think a lot of men, most men do not want that connection because they're seen and then they go into sex and it's really hard for them. Mm-hmm. They don't, they, a lot of men will almost disassociate when having sex. They're not even there. And you've mm-hmm. probably seen that in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, you know, if we can start to become more connected, I think, with ourselves, we can become better lovers and which create a happier society. You know, you're more happy with yourself and more regulated. Our partners are more regulated. Yeah. The energy is in the world and the universe to pick up from other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much between us you know like connection as as a form rather than you know 
how someone looks or what their job title is. You know what I mean? Like there's connection, emotion, you know, any of these other attributes that we can, that you, that we've been talking about this whole time. It's always been there. Love. It's always here, but we're just looking at the other thing else. And you can feel it, man. You can feel it. And your body tells you when you're connecting. Your body tells you. Even when we were little kids, you know, you got butterflies in your stomach when you're around that person. And you feel it. And then if you can, yeah, there's connection and love there all over the place. Yeah. If we take the time, love is everywhere. It's a Mm -hmm. smorgasbord. I'm really curious to talk about the physicality of sex as a form of self-worth. Are there any brave souls out there ready to talk about sex with me? Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs, Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram, and I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men. <laughs>